Our speaker today is Maria, who I met through the ICSA convention. And um, I absolutely adore talking to this woman, even though we disagree on so many things. She's she's got a way of expressing them that I, I enjoy the disagreement of the conversation. Like it's, she's amazing. So I'm gonna hand it over to her and welcome Maria. Thanks. Thanks everybody for having me, Megan. It's good to see you. And I don't, I don't even agree that we disagree on that many things for what it's worth. Um, I actually think that we have many, many, uh, what I always think of as productive differences of opinion, where I always wind up learning a lot more from not having strict agreement um, than from uh, actually being on the same, you know, I'm preaching to the choir if everybody agrees with me, right? Like, and who needs it? Um, so I'm super happy to see you here. I'm happy to be here, everybody. Um, as Megan said, I, my name's Maria. I've got my name on there since my name is, is publicly associated with uh, my recovery as well. Um, so to hell with traditions on that front. Um, but for purposes of today, because I don't know you, I don't know this group all that well, um, I am just going to do, as Megan said, she said, you know, tell whatever, whatever your story looks like, whatever story looks like to you. I actually started thinking about story. So like in my day life, in my day-to-day -day life, I'm, I'm a writing teacher. I teach writing, I teach literature. So my bread and butter, in fact, is stories. And I think a lot about what's a story for? Like, what are we doing here? Um, why, why do we tell stories? What is the, uh, you know, what draws us to listen to each other's stories, to tell our own uh, or to tell parts of our own? And I remember some years back, I read an interesting essay by this very, very important writer about how anecdote wasn't important. All stories had to have a meaning, a purpose, a higher purpose, like a big function, something very dramatic and, 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 and male, I guess I'll say. So uh, it was very, it was very grand. This guy thought that all stories had to have a, a purpose. And I'm like, well, I guess I just have these ditzy little stories that are meaningful for me and, and, and my pals maybe. Um, but nonetheless, stories that other people tell me continue to teach me, they continue to excite me, they continue to entertain me. So like whatever reason we have for telling stories, they go back to the dawn of human time, right? Like they go back to the dawn of human history. Even the idea of time is a story. There isn't really time. The idea of time moving forward, that's an invention. It's a story. We're inventing the idea even of plot, of narrative arc. So when I teach stories to my students, I talk about the idea of plot equals change over time. And so in a novel, in a short story, in any kind of anecdotal situation, we start at point A, point B happens, and we wind up at point C, ideally. And we don't wind up again back at point A. We've got progress. We make progression through time, through we learn, we change. So plot equals change over time. Even in like the, the recovery community, we talk about our story should consist, whatever that should is, should consist of what, what it was like, what happened, and what we're like now. And what I started thinking about today was like, Am I fundamentally different than I was when I got clean, when I started recovery? I'm older. I'm bossier. Um, I don't know in all ways that I'm more insightful. I don't know that I am in all ways better. I don't know that all of this has been progress for the good. Some of it may have been regress. Some of it may have not been evolution, but devolution. And the reason I started thinking about this was because my daughter came to visit for a holiday weekend here in the U.S. We had a holiday weekend, for better and worse. My daughter came to visit, and she was awful, awful. 
for four days. She was completely awful. And she's 26. And I'm like, I believe in some abstract way that at 26, you should not be awful for four days. I feel like something should happen in your life that you are better now. Uh, And she's like, but I'm not. And I'm going, well, I don't know what to do with you then. So I have this expectation that you're getting better. You got sober. You're supposed to be better now. Right. And so I, of course, text my mom. I'm like, mom, the kid is awful. She's like, you're awful. And I'm like, well, so are you. And then I started thinking we have three generations of awful women right now yelling at each other for how awful the other ones are. And I'm like, is this progress? Are any of us getting better? Any of us evolving? And I started thinking about is what I have to say about recovery, is it really a story about how it was awful, something happened, I got better? Or is it actually the story of how I get up every day and I'm as flawed and failing in compassion and insight as ever I was? And as is my story about how every day's story, every day's goal isn't to become better, but to become less unkind, to be, become more compassionate, to be able to provide some level of grace to myself and to the people in my life about how flawed we are. Um, because I had a total failure of compassion this weekend, a total failure, a complete, utter absence of the ability to be kind to someone who needed my kindness. Should she have needed my kindness? No. Did she? Yes. Did I give it to her? Not really. And so in that sense, my ability to tell a story about recovery is really limited today. What I can tell you about, at least from my perspective, after four days of an adult kid sobbing, what I can tell you is that all the things that I'd like to think about my own recovery, sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. Sometimes I'm kind. Sometimes I'm perfectly hideous. Sometimes I go back to the poem, which I'm going to read to you, that my mother sent to me when I first came into recovery. My mother is a terribly difficult woman. She's not compassionate. She's not kind. She's very brilliant. She's very interesting. But compassion and kindness and grace are not her strong suit. They're not her long suit. They're not mine either, it turns out, as a mom. But years ago, my mother sent me a poem And it goes like this. It's by Mary Oliver. I'm sure many of you have heard some or all of this poem or seen quotes. It's called Wild Geese. And I continue to come back to this poem because it continues to teach me. And it's the same thing. It's not a story. We're not moving forward. It just continues to change me as we go. Here's the poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. 
I don't know why that struck me so hard when I uh, received it in snail mail. That's how long ago this was from my mother uh, on a little typed sheet of paper. I don't know why it continues to hit me so hard, except that that first line, you do not have to be good. The idea that I had to be good or that there was a way to be good or to do it right, whatever it was, there was some way to do it right. And no one had ever given me, as we've often heard in meetings, the handbook. Nobody ever gave me the rule book. And I've heard a lot of people, including myself, say that with great resentment and kind of indignation that someone was in charge of telling us how to be in the world. And nobody told us. And we're still, some of us, me sometimes, stamping our feet and going, but nobody told me how to do this. Nobody told me how to be a person. Turns out uh, there is no rule book, right? And nobody tells anybody else how to do it. And we're all just shuffling along the, the best we can sometimes. Sometimes we're not doing our best by any means. Um, and sometimes our best really isn't good enough. But the expectation that we have to do it right, um, the expectation that there is a right way to be in the world, that there's a right way to be, whether it's in recovery or sober, or however, however it is, the right way to be a parent, the right, right way to be a partner or a child, there isn't a right way. Um, and I, I have often found myself butting up against my own expectations of what I ought to be, what other people ought to be. And those expectations set me up. They're like, you know, as they say, expectations are premeditated resentments. And I actually really believe that to be true. So the idea that I do not have to be good and that by the end, the last two lines of that poem, over and over again, announcing my place in the family of things, that even though I am not good and am not good at very many things and am often just straight up bad at stuff, uh, sometimes even just bad at being compassionate, um, I still get to be here. I still get to be a part of whatever community I've decided to be in, as long as I can reasonably expect myself to behave um, with some ethics and some respect for other people's space. Sometimes I don't even meet that baseline. Um, and I have noticed in the last few years since the pandemic that I and other people, I think, have really struggled to even meet a baseline ethical standard of how can we be kind to other people? How can we be patient? How can we be compassionate? How can we offer grace? Um, and I feel like the story that I've got lately is a story in some ways of, of, what did I say at the beginning, Megan, generative or productive disagreement. And in, maybe in my case, productive failure. Um, I have found in recovery, because I've been, I've been, I've been in the rooms for a while, um, that what I can learn over and over is the difference between humility and humiliation. I can over and over again, relearn um, what it means to own my, my limitations and my failures and try and work past those things by trusting other people to teach me. How do they handle failure? How do they handle um, their own missteps and their own mistakes? Um, I don't know that everybody does it well all the time, but if we can each of us do it well now and then, we can probably offer each other a little bit of assistance. So a little bit about the narrative arc of my story. Um, you know, I don't think the most interesting story I have is um, my story of uh, addiction and recovery. I don't think that's even the most salient story that I have because I've now been, I've been in recovery a lot longer than I ever used. Um, the recovery, I don't even think of as, you know, when we think about the word recovery, it implies from something, you know, we're recovering from an illness or people talk about being recovering Catholics or recovering from, you know, you know, addiction or in the process of recovery. Um, that to me makes my 
when I think of recovery as from something, I'm looking back in some ways. I'm looking back on a narrative, on a past, on a story that's technically over. So if we go like, again, to the idea of what it was like, what happened and what we're like now, well, the story's over now. That's our end point. I got sober young for one thing. And also we're all gonna live to be a thousand years old if medicine continues in this vein. Um, if, we're, if we're lucky, we'll be continuing past the point any of us expected, I think. So my, my ending isn't yet. The story's not over. The story's barely underway in some ways. Um, and I continue to feel um, that I should be further along in recovery or in success or in my life or in my maturity or in my wisdom, in my insight, in any way. But all of that implies a real dependence on the idea of a story ending well. And that implies a dependence on a story ending. But we here we are in the middle, right? We're always in the middle of right now. And if we're, if we're not looking back and we're not looking forward, here we are, we're in now. And every now and then uh, I find now really uncomfortable. I'm having to look right now at how badly I behaved over the last few days and trying to prepare myself to not continue to behave badly for the next few. If I look back at my recovery, I continue to feel like, wow, that's an extraordinary um, string of bad calls that you somehow survived through other people's kindness, through other people's patience, through your own very occasional insight or good decisions. Um, and so like when I try and tell a neat story of I was a total mess and then things got really bad and then I got better and now I'm great. I'm not great. I'm absolutely not. Um, I try, but that's not a story. A story has to have some drama, some excitement, right? And the day-to-day -day of being in recovery or being a recovered person, depending on how you use the language, the day-to-day -day of it is an ongoing opportunity. It's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing challenge. You know, it's a lot of things, but it is not a neat narrative arc. The story I can tell you about right now is that, you know, when everything when everything falls apart, when you're an inactive addiction, that's a crisis. You respond to it because you're good at responding to crisis. You make it a bigger crisis. You dig the hole deeper. You get even more messed up. Now, I find that time moves differently because when things are a crisis, I'm like, I've made another crisis. Now I have to go shore it up and kind of try and clean up what I have created. A lot of this gets brought to my attention because my daughter, as I said, is, is early in sobriety. Um, and she said to me the other day, it was terribly painful. I, I was saying to her, okay, so nothing objectively is going on in your life that is a crisis, but you continue to generate crisis for yourself. Are you bored? Are you looking for excitement? Are you looking for emotional intensity that is so naturally a part of your life when you're in active addiction? Um, and she said, yeah, I think I feel stuck because nothing's exciting. And I'm like, what are, what are you expecting life to be like? You know, are you expecting it to be nonstop falling in love and people, you know, people being a mess? I mean, because where do you allow for peace? And she's like, but peace just doesn't sound very interesting. I'm like, well, it doesn't make for a good novel for sure. But for the day-to-day -day of getting through a life, peace is pretty fundamental and pretty key and she said, she, and this is where I come back to story. She said, but like, is there any point 
And I went to life. Is that, is that your question? She's like, yeah. I mean, like, what am I working toward? And this is where I start to think about the Buddhists really had it right. Because if we're all working toward an end goal in our life, who are we expecting to do the checklist when we arrive, whatever the pearly gates, you know, do I say I was an okay mom, not a very good wife. I did reasonably well at this and that. And the other thing now, what? Well, I've still died. Right. You know, so, I I mean, it's just the, the struggle that I think my daughter is having that I sometimes have is finding a sense of purpose in recovery can be a challenge because it isn't all drama and excitement. It isn't all highs and disastrous lows. Sometimes it's just the ache of being alive. And sometimes there's joy in being alive. And sometimes there's a great deal of peace. And sometimes that peace can become boredom. And I think what I notice in um, what I noticed in early sobriety in myself, and I sometimes see it in other people, and I still do it to a point, is people saying, I need to stir up some excitement for myself. Um, and that, that makes for a good story. Excitement makes for a very good story, but it doesn't make for a very peaceful life. Um, as any of us who have been involved in other people's crises or in crises in our lives that we did not ourselves choose, that we didn't, um, that we didn't ask for, that we didn't create. So I think, you know, I've been so stuck on the idea of what is a story that I don't have, you know, I feel like there's, there's the idea of a parable. In the end, there's a lesson. I have something um, I have something valuable to impart. I don't know that I do. And if I do, I don't know that I know what it is. Um, recovery for me isn't a straight line. It isn't for very many people. And it isn't from what, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. What it's like now is very much as circuitous and tangled a path as it ever was. It's just that I am able to walk that path without creating disaster for myself or other people as often. Um, on that path, what do I learn? I learn how to be a decent person. I don't do it very well yet. I learn how to be a better worker, partner, friend, you know, mom, but, but I also learn how to deal with the fact that life isn't, isn't designed to have a neat narrative arc. We're going to come upon disasters. We didn't choose. We're going to lose people. We wanted to keep, we're going to do things we never intended to do and then did them anyway. And we're going to suffer the consequences. Um, all of that, all of that happens, whether we will it to or no. Um, and I feel like a lot of recovery. And I think if somebody had told me this early in sobriety, if somebody had said a lot of recovery is in handling the slings and arrows of life with reasonable grace, I would have been like, I'm not interested. That's really boring. I don't feel like handling anything with reasonable grace. I feel like being, you know, live fast, die young, and I'm out of here. Clearly, I have not died young. Um, so here I continue to be trying to trying to learn how to live with reasonable grace for as long as I get to. Um, I feel like I feel like I don't have um, I don't have an inspiring story in some ways to offer today. But I also feel like what I have is a sustainable story. Um, I feel like uh, I'm, I've just let Megan in. I'm going to assume, Megan, you are back in. Um, I feel like I have a sustainable story in that I um, my expectations for what life will be like are much more open. You know, at some point I heard I heard another meditating, me- meditating person Uh, talk about approaching everything in life with an idea of um, friendly curiosity. 
there are things that have happened in all of our lives that I am not friendly about that you probably aren't either. Uh, you know, having lost a spouse, I'm not feeling super friendly about that. Having lost children, not friendly about that either. The fact is those things happened and they happened to everybody in one way or another. Um, my ability to my ability to recognize that each day does not go from a fever pitch of joy to a fever pitch of despair anymore, and that I live much more in the middle area. I think, again, 22 years ago, I probably would have found that really dull. And today, what it allows me to do is see joy in tiny, tiny amounts and be grateful for that. Um, the fact that my daughter, after four days of being a nightmare, was reasonably civilized for one morning, that seemed pretty good this morning. I was like, okay, you, you're gonna head home and you're not going to be, um, you're not gonna be a total, a total disaster area. The joy that I find in my life now isn't you know, stadium level joy. Sometimes it's very, very tiny. Sometimes it's a dog asleep in front of the fireplace. Sometimes it's a small hike I get to take. The story isn't always um, inspirational. Sometimes the story is very, very simple that I, yes, what was it like? I would have died had I not stopped, you know, being an active addict. What happened? I hit a wall. Um, enough people were around when I hit a wall that they slapped me into somewhere where I could get some tools and the rest was up to me. Two decades on, it's still up to me. And I'm grateful that I get to, to do it. And what I am grateful isn't even anymore all the patience that I have received in the room. What I'm grateful for is that I have learned enough patience with myself to continue the process. Um, I don't always give myself any grace either. The reason I'm hard on my daughter is because I'm hard on myself. And maybe that's because my mother was hard on me because she's hard on herself. Maybe this is a very, very long lesson I get to learn. I'm going to guess it is. But the fact is that I don't have... Um, I don't have the kind of uh, sort of emotional highs and lows that I once craved. I don't want them anymore. Um, if they come, they come. But what I like is this sustainable, peaceful day-to-day -day walk. It's not a uh, it's not an opera. It's a very quiet short story every day. You know, not a lot happens in it. Um, and when something happens, I'm better able equipped, better equipped to get through it and sometimes to help other people through their small stories as well. Um, that's what I have found in recovery. I think I thought it would be, you know, uh, if I thought about the promises, you know, we will, we will understand the word serenity and we will know peace. Those were the promises that seemed appealing to me. I don't care. I don't, I haven't found emotion or, you know, financial security. I haven't found, you know, everything has been better in all the areas of my life, but I have found um, some comprehension of the word serenity and I have found some peace. Um, and it's hanging onto those things that allows me to continue going through this. And the story I tell isn't really dramatic, but it is, um, it is one of one foot in front of the other of not giving up, of not quitting, of not falling back into the ditch. Um, and I'm grateful that I get to, I'm grateful that I get to walk this path.